Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are joined again by activist Robert Miller. Hello. Howdy, howdy. Hello, and we're doing another reaction episode because I don't know if you guys like it, but we do. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) Kristen and I, for a previous episode, went dumpster diving and we did a very poor job of it. Just terrible. Just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But in the process of that, I did reach out to a dumpster diving community on Facebook and they had us join them but it was after we recorded the last episode so while we were dumpster diving with them they were telling us that their inspiration for doing it themselves was this documentary called Just Eat It. So Kristen and I decided that it would be fun to add a little content by watching that ourselves and inviting Robbie to join us because finally we thought maybe we'd found a good one for him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was great. This was something that I didn't hate, which is uh, novel for things that I have read or consumed for this podcast. I know we wanted to bring the listeners some something new and different and exciting. (laughs) So this is something that we actually would recommend everybody go watch. It's called Just Eat It. The link will be In the podcast notes, you can just look on your Apple device or your Spotify account or wherever you are, and you can go watch that movie right now. It's like an hour and 15 minutes long. Pause this episode and then come back. (laughs) We'll be here. (laughs) It's free and some nice CanCon, so. Yeah, I've got to say that it's like, it's also just like one of the, the nicest, like it's just visually stunning. Like I didn't expect like a mini doc that's like an hour and 15 minutes long about dumpster diving would be so just like visually gorgeous but it is i know right (laughs) all of the aerial shots in the supermarket i was like damn these guys are they're going for it i this is very watchable yeah yeah like i really liked all of the little interludes that they did of just like industrial processes and things i was like damn this is this is some very high quality can con. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, the life of the pepper. Oh. We should maybe tell people what the documentary is about first. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Kristen, do you want to field that one? Yeah, for sure. It's a documentary that covers this Vancouver-based couple and they challenged themselves to survive only on food waste for 6 months. So, this is a couple that does much more intense challenges than Kyla and I do. Um, but it didn't just mean that they dumpster dive. They had um, a few more rules that made it more reasonable. So they would only take discarded food. So in some cases, their friends let them clear out their fridge um, of things that they weren't going to eat. In other cases, they would pay for things at the grocery store, but it was stuff that they had confirmed was already called, meaning that it wasn't going to be sold. And then in some cases, they did uh, look through those dumpsters or like they would get to the farmer's market at the end of the day and take stuff. But it covers that and it also explores like the issue of food waste at the same time. Yeah, all through the supply chain, which I found really valuable, just the visuals of all of the waste. I don't know, like we've done two episodes on this already, but it hadn't really sunk in for me. I need to watch more documentaries, I think is the lesson (laughs) I'm taking away from this. Yeah, my one complaint about this documentary was just that it didn't focus enough on legislative solutions. Like, it focused a lot on how consumers need to change, which is fair. Consumers need to change in a big way. But, like, we're also products of, like, the capitalist system. And I think it could have done a better job of showing how governments could make a difference. 
Yeah, I think the one weakness was in terms of just like, I didn't find really it did much for solutions at all. Like it wasn't really like a solutions focused documentary as much as it was just like what it would look like to dumpster dive and then also follow through so much of that food waste process. But yeah, it was a little, I think even from like a consumerist perspective, it was pretty weak on like actual solutions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, especially since a lot of the issues that they showed really were systemic problems. They tried to buy cold food from a few markets and were straight up refused because the markets are like, no, it's a health and safety issue. So, I mean, that's something that a regular consumer is going to really struggle with if you're trying to buy the ugly food and they won't sell it to you. Yeah, and also... um I mean, they do cover this in the documentary. It's something that actually isn't true. They won't be sued for it, um, at least, I think, in all provinces except Quebec. Um, but although this was 10 years ago, maybe Quebec has laws now. But that's something that in our third part of this series, we'll be talking about when we talk to a food rescue charity. They they discuss why it's not the case that grocery stores can get sued for selling uh, or for donating food that is sort of past its it's visual prime. <laughs> Knowing that and then watching supermarkets refuse these people and citing like, oh, we could get sued. It just, it made me angry <laughs> to watch. The real answer for why they don't do it is because if they gave away like cold food on the cheap or for free, they people would just wait for that to happen. Like it's an entirely economic decision on them protecting profitability. Yeah, which is why I think people need to like hit grocery stores a lot harder with this idea that they're wasting too much food so that it's politically untenable for them to keep just throwing shit out. Well, and the documentary made a really good point of pointing out that like, oh, you wouldn't litter and littering is not one of the biggest problems facing this planet right now. Food waste is. So why is it such a taboo to litter? But to throw away food is is considered... Well, they made a, a point of it in, in the film where they were like, if you're not throwing away food, you're a bad host, basically, for events or even just having people to your house. Although I don't think I ever throw away food when I have guests over. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that culture of oversupply, I thought was a really good point that they covered. Do you guys have a favorite haul that they had or like favorite reason that something got thrown out? I'm asking because I do, but <laughs> you guys do. <laughs> Well, I think we, we might have the same one. I don't know. I really liked the way they played the hummus. Uh, so they found like a truckload of hummus that was perfectly fine. And their reaction to finding it and the way that it just, you could see that, I don't know, maybe they were like playing it up a bit, but it was the moment for them that really solidified this idea. I think it's one thing to know food is being wasted and it's another to like viscerally feel it, you know? Yeah, that was my second favorite. My favorite was um, the big like cases of chocolate that they found. And when they were going through like the reasons that it might be thrown out, they eventually realized that the reason all of this like fancy organic chocolate had been thrown out was because it didn't have French writing on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I think that may not actually be true. Yeah, I mean... I want it to be true. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I wanted it to be true as well, because that would be some really solid CanCon. But like, there are so many reasons why stuff like that gets thrown out. Most of it has to do with shelving space. That it's like, you know, they ordered all of this fancy chocolate. It's not selling as well as it needs to. And they need that shelf space for something else. And so they'll just dump it because like the profits lost on not shelving the hot product to keep something that's not selling well displayed is so high. So, yeah, I strongly suspect that the reason they came up with is not true. 
But that's the thing about waste is is it's impossible to know sometimes why something was thrown away that's perfectly fine. But Robbie, that's a really good point is the dead space on shelves. If you have something sitting on a shelf that's not selling, that costs the company money. Yeah. yeah. But I do also have a, a favorite reason why things get wasted story. Mine was actually the bananas. And this is because there are there are actually two historical events known as the Banana Wars. Um, one of them obviously <laughs> is just like the American imperialism of forcing through like horrible fascist regimes in Latin America so that fruit companies could operate freely. Woo! But the second Banana War was a trade war between the EU and the US that happened in like the late 1990s. Uh, and that's why the EU has all these like weird fucking rules about bananas. Because the EU has like a couple of colonies in the Caribbean that are like fairly minor banana producers, uh, but they wanted to like do a little bit, bit of protectionism and like, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the US, despite the fact that the US itself does not export any bananas to Europe, sued them at the WTO. And the EU was like, well, okay, so we'll stop being outrageously protectionist. And instead, we'll just like create all these laws around bananas that are so arduous that no one else wants to export bananas to us. <laughs> and that was how they got around that WTO ruling. Um, but yeah, it was entirely because like US fruit companies operating out of like Caribbean countries that the US has colonized uh, were mad at the EU. And so the US took the case to court rather than like Barbados or something. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's my favorite story about food waste because it is uh, imperialism and colonialism and food waste all wrapped into one very obscure historical event. <laughs> And you get to say banana war, which is just a treat. Banana war. <laughs> That's my second favorite war next to uh, next to the emu war. Oh, that in Australia? War. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which they, I think the Australians badly lost that one. They did. It took two waves. <laughs> Constant vigilance. <laughs> when I saw the hummus bin, I was just like, I want to swim in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just impressed with all of the ways that they thought to find food waste because Kristen and I were I, now I feel lazy because we just looked in a few dumpsters. Yeah. But when they went to Victoria and they had to live at their friend's place or their family's place for like a week and they were like, we don't want to dumpster dive this whole week. And that's when I think they started going to the grocery stores and asking for the cold items. I was like, oh, that's so smart. And when they found the pizza photo shoot where they were doing like advertisement photos of pizza, Yo, that and was so there's wild. Just all this these pizza ingredients that were per like perfectly sealed that just didn't get used in the photo shoot that were thrown away. I was like, that is a stream of waste I didn't even think of. Yeah, one of the hacks that they had that I thought was really good was uh, putting that eat me first bin in their fridge. Oh, I loved that. I think I'm going to do that, actually. Me too. Yeah. Anything that's like about to go off, put it there. Yeah, and then you just got to cook around that. So smart. Yeah, that was actually one of the things that like contrasted very sharply between like Seaspiracy and this documentary, for instance, was that like all of the little like scenes of just like their domestic struggles and like wins <laughs> It was very stuff, honest. Yeah. Yeah, actually felt good and wholesome and nice. And I was like, oh man, these are... And like it also tracked for me as well because, you know, I've had buddies who dumpster dived and anytime I would go over to their house, it was the same thing as when they brought their friend over to grocery shop. They were just saying, you know, I got... 16 kilograms of this random thing that I can't possibly eat. Do you want to take some with you? It's like every time I'd go over, I'd come back with something that they'd fished out of a dumpster. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're like, now I've just got a ton of hummus to eat for the next month. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please help me. <laughs> well, and, and Kristen and I experienced that firsthand when we went dumpster diving with this team that does it. Well, this team was inspired by this film, Just Eat It. And they've been doing this for five years now. So because they were like, oh, like this film is showing all of this waste. But let's see like what it's really like, which is interesting because the film takes place in Vancouver, which is where we did this. So to know that people were inspired by this film and then have been living this way for five years is incredible. Yeah, I also thought, um, so I, I made a note of writing down their their stats on food spending because I thought it was pretty wild. But over the whole six months, they spent only $200 on food. Um, and presumably that was all that called grocery store food. And they rescued over $20,000 worth of food, which is a huge amount of food. <laughs> That seems so implausible to me because, like, I don't understand how you could eat that much. Like, did they just, like, fill their house with non-perishables? Yeah, it, it looked I mean, like it. Yeah, and it doesn't really surprise me that much based on that run we did with the dumpster diving group because they rescued easily hundreds of dollars in olive oil on our one trip out. <laughs> like, <laughs> Christian, do you want to list what we found? Yeah, sure. Uh <laughs> So the first one that we went into, they rescued only olive oil. There was also a lot of uh, pickled jalapenos, and that is what I smelled like after our run. <laughs> the first one. Wait, you didn't rescue the pickled jalapenos? I yeah, they were giant jars. Um, yeah, they were like two liters <laughs> or something. Like what? They were huge, and there were so many of them. And then there was also like two, like the biggest cans I've ever seen of peaches, just industrial sized cans of peaches. So many of them, all in this one dumpster. Yeah, it could have made like the largest uh, fruit like crumble or crisp in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Set a Guinness record. Yeah, the second stop, we found a bunch of, like, uh, semolina crackers, and uh, they also got some canned beans with some rusted, like, externally rusted cans. Then the next one, um, there was a bunch of produce. I got some uh, red chilies that I put in soup later, uh, which was pretty cool. And I also got to use a grabber. That was uh, my favorite part of the whole experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, I picture the plastic toy grabbers that kids will play with. It's like two claws. I don't know. If I'm describing it right, but hopefully people are picturing it. Yeah, they're basically yeah, the same fun. as the garbage picker-uppers, but hopefully a little bit more, like, substantial. Yes. Then the next one after that was uh, noodles. We got a whole bunch of noodles. Well, I think Kyla and I each picked up one big pack of noodles, and uh, the, like, the group got, I think, four big, like, garbage bags full of these packs of noodles, because um, they... it. I think the way it works is they, they save some for themselves... They also, because they have a Facebook page, like there are families that are hungry that will contact them and they'll give them food. And then also they've got some local partnerships. They were talking about an indigenous like friendship center that they partner with sometimes. So presumably some of the noodles went to went to them. They weren't all for, for the family. After that was the Mediterranean bakery where we found just a whole bunch of bread. <laughs> So much bread. I turned it all into croutons. So I have just this huge bag of croutons now that I snack on throughout <laughs> the day. <laughs> yeah, bread waste is is wild. When we were 
doing Camp Pekawewin here in Edmonton, that was one of the things that like we ended up struggling with was that we we talked to a bunch of bakeries and they were so willing to just like give us bread. But the problem was, was that they had so much fucking bread. <laughs> like they would show up and unload literally a minivan full of bread every day to the point where it was like, yeah, we had to start turning them away because we were like, you are giving us more bread than we could possibly feed to people. And it's like, people can't just live on bread. <laughs> but even if they did, we still would have more bread than we, we could use. And that was wild. Because that also wasn't like, you know, we had every bakery in the city in our pocket. Mm-hmm, yeah. What I thought was wild is like, um, the bread dumpster, I think, was the one that the, the group was most worried about because they were really sort of defensive about throwing out their bread. <laughs> Apparently, it had been locked previously and like, it had just recently been unlocked. So... I don't know. These these people were very serious about not getting their bread that they're just going to throw it anyway eaten. But the last uh, the last dumpster that we went to had uh, kombucha and almond milk. So Kyla took some almond milk. Did you try the kombucha, Kyla? I thought it was terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, my partner really liked it. You know, lavender and chamomile. I I mean, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. You just have to really like kombucha. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I'm not a huge chamomile person, and I was like, hmm. This kombucha does not taste very nice, but not because it was in a dumpster, just because it was not kombucha that I cared for. <laughs> yeah, we found out why it was in the dumpster, which is that it tasted bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the the almond milk that I got was fine, but it's the same sort of thing that you experienced where I was like, ah, this isn't the, f- I was like, this isn't my favorite flavor of chocolate almond milk. I'm really particular about my chocolate milk. <laughs> But it was totally fine. Chocolate milk connoisseur over here. <laughs> I, I hate to brag, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we had a really interesting experience. It was really, I mean, I think because we didn't watch the film before going out, I think we were both a little surprised by how much we found. And then to watch the film and realize that, oh, we didn't even scratch the surface. Yeah. What I also thought was really interesting because when we just went out and did dumpster diving and had no success, we had zero strategy and we had just kind of gone to dumpsters behind a busy street in Vancouver, which is not the strategy at all. The strategy that this guy used and that the documentary used was going to like wholesalers in industrial areas where they're not as used to, first of all, there's like fewer people that are like experiencing homelessness that are there. So um, there's not as much defense around the dumpsters, but also there's a lot more food because you have to be able to drive to these areas. So you have to have a car to get there. And it uh, really yielded a lot of food. They also had like a bunch of tools that they brought with them that we did not think to bring at all. Um, Just like simple things like you have to have a knife because you're going to be opening a lot of boxes. Just makes sense to me. (laughs) We didn't think about it at all. Yeah. And like the issue of grocery stores locking their bins is can get like pretty intense. There was a case, I think, maybe in Portland, somewhere in the northwestern United States during the early part of the pandemic where there was a grocery store that had like a power outage. And so they had to throw out everything from their fridge section. And, you know, people were like, holy shit, there's a whole dumpster full of like perfectly good food that's just being thrown out, I think like a Kroger's or something. And it ended up becoming like a standoff where the grocery store called the police and you had like two dozen police officers surrounding this dumpster, preventing hungry families from taking food out of it. It was possibly one of the wildest things that I have seen in terms of both like food waste and the police state 
interacting with each other. Yeah, it's like strong evidence of how the police most of the time are there to protect um, like property interests more so than like public safety. Yeah. Yeah. But now whenever I think about locked grocery bins or like grocery store um, dumpsters, that like the image that comes into my mind is that it's like, this is so unnecessary. So just to go back to the film for a moment, we talked about that jacked celery farmer at the very beginning of the film. Did you guys notice that? <laughs> that guy was ripped. <laughs> He's like, yeah, wow. I mean, he was making a really good point about how much celery is wasted, but I couldn't stop looking at his arms. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, they picked some delightful, delightful farmers to talk to. I think one of my favorite sections actually from the film was when they discussed gleaning. Which, for those who are not familiar, is was basically a practice in a lot of sort of feudal Europe, where either sort of the indigent poor of a locality would be allowed to sort of like pick through the fields after the farmers had gone through, just to like grab whatever was left. Or actually, in a lot of cases, it was literally that if you were sort of like a tenant farmer on church property, uh, you were directed to leave a section of your field unharvested specifically so that poor people could just come and take from the fields what they needed. They really sort of like undersell how important gleaning was in the film because they go through a, a church organized gleaning group that just goes out into the fields of farmers and collects produce that they didn't get when they were harvesting. Because as the super jacked farmer points out, um, it's actually quite expensive labor wise to like gather up all these little like food scraps that are left in the field, despite them all being good. So yeah, they go with a gleaning group picking sweet potatoes and like, yeah, this was a huge part of just like how feudal Europe kept people fed. Super cool idea. And it was stolen from us because as the commons were enclosed by capitalism and like property became this sort of like sacred object, farmers stopped allowing people to glean their fields. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there are, this was, I, I thought one of the useful tips that you could draw from this documentary is, you know, if you're somebody that's concerned about food waste, there are local gleaning groups in a lot of communities, so you can try to find them. And yes, a lot of farmers aren't going to let you do it, but there are farmers that do genuinely care and that will allow these gleaning groups to come in. And so you could join one of those. That's helpful. Or start one. Or start one, yeah. Definitely. One of my favorite moments from that scene was watching they didn't even comment on it so i think it's just the filmmakers having a great sense of humor this little boy trying to fill his bag with a sweet potato and he keeps dropping it <laughs> and they like leave it on that scene for like so long. a really long time it's <laughs> <laughs> just making fun of this child yeah one thing that i was uh so when i i also thought the gleaning was really interesting and i was like i wonder if there's a gleaning group in edmonton and a thing that I learned from my Google search from that is that the Edmonton Food Bank actually started as a gleaners association, which I think is really cool. Oh. Yeah, fun historical fact that I found out. <laughs> it's also one of the things where I'm like, it also feels like gleaning would be less successful in Edmonton because I'm like, what are we going to do? Go out and like glean wheat? <laughs> and canola? like Onions, your favorite. Yeah, my favorite <laughs> onions. I really liked the moment in the film just kind of near the beginning when they first started their challenge, where he was explaining how he was in a dumpster and it was like one of his first times and the person in the market came out and dropped a bag of garbage on his head. And j just the moment where he was like, this fucking sucks. And it's like, yeah, a lot of people get their food this way. Um, so I, I don't know. I really, I thought that was a really interesting moment as well in the film. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
also highlights that theme of like shame and food reclamation, which is I it's something that it was a key theme when we were talking to the dumpster diving group that we went out with. This like dilemma that the person that we were going with is a father and um is doing it for environmental reasons, really hates the food waste. But there's sort of a reticence to like take the stuff that they get and his kids bring it to school and stuff because and for them to talk about what they're doing in the evenings and stuff because there is this stigma and the shame around it. I just think that's a really interesting thing. <laughs> he doesn't want social services knocking on his door because his kids are eating out of a dumpster, you know? Yeah, exactly. Even though the food that they're getting is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're doing it. I mean, it it's an environmentally good thing to be doing. Arguably, there should be a sort of a lot more food reclamation that happens. And uh, there shouldn't really be this shame around it. But I mean, definitely it was the the stereotype that I had going in and it was why maybe I was so anxious to even try this challenge is like this idea that, you know, dumpster diving is a thing that people do when they have to and there's like some shame attached to it. So that that's something that at least emotionally I've been reckoning with over the three-part series we've been doing. Yeah, it's really interesting because now I view it in a way where I'm like, oh no, we're doing the right thing by doing this. There's, there should be no shame attached to it. The food that I'm not going to eat, I'm at least going to put in the compost, which is much better than sending it straight to landfill in its packaging, which is what all of these companies are doing. Yeah. And that's why I also thought that hierarchy of food uses that they talked about was really helpful. This idea that first try to feed people, then feed animals. If you can't, like, use an anaerobic digester and try to get some energy from it. If you can't, then compost it. And at the very last two steps are landfill or incineration. But then instead of the pyramid being like people at the top and incineration and that landfill at the bottom, it's reversed. So more of food is being landfilled and composted than it's like feeding people almost. Yeah, yeah. They had a stat in it from the States. And again, this is 10 years ago. It might be slightly different. Composting is a little bit more fashionable now. But at the time, uh, they said 97% of food waste in the U.S. ended up in either landfill or an incinerator. So really just highlights how flipped that pyramid is right now. Yeah, I there's actually a few stats in that documentary that I wrote down, which I think the the one that upset me the most was rich countries have 150 to 200% of the food that they actually need. So we're stocking more than twice as much food as what we actually would need to eat and survive. And so much of it is being thrown away. And it was all really made clear to me in the scene in the film where the guy is eating yogurt. And he's like, I don't even like yogurt, but we've got a fridge full of yogurt that we rescued. (laughs) And I don't want to waste it. And he's put on like 10 pounds during this challenge because he's just trying to eat all of this food. (laughs) But there's just so much of it. Yeah, I liked how they saved all of that chocolate for Halloween and then they didn't have enough trick-or-treaters. <laughs> like, damn it. I'm wondering how many of those parents are watching the documentary after the fact and being like, wait, those people gave my kids wait dumpster chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was one stat that I was looking at that originally I like didn't feel like it was all that. Like I was like, why did you include that in the film? But it was when they pointed out that like 4% of US energy use just goes to food waste. And at first I was like, that doesn't sound like all that much. Like, that's not a big deal. And then I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, actually, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like a measurable amount of electricity and energy use just 
ends up in a dumpster. Yeah, and I actually, I might be wrong on this, but I think it's actually more now. Uh, I think we use this in one of the other episodes. I think it might be 8% now. But we can fact check me against former me to see. <laughs> but I mean, even at 4%, considering the United States is one of the largest contributors to the climate crisis, if that is just energy that's being thrown away. I That whole section made me really upset. And then the life of the pepper where they played the Breakfast Club song and they showed the pepper growing and then going through the process of getting to a shelf and then rotting in someone's fridge. Holy shit. Like I was a little bit high, but I feel like that would have upset me sober. <laughs> the only thing that didn't upset me about that scene is that I was thinking about um, a movie that I want to watch and I should put like movie in air quotes. Because uh, it's more of like an experimental thing where they show the life cycle of a pedometer as it's like made from like material in China and then shipped to the US and sold in a store, but with like no jump cuts and no acceleration. It's just like 150 hours of this pedometer crossing the Pacific Ocean. And I really want to watch that movie. So the whole like life cycle of the pepper, I was sitting there being like, oh, damn, I got to gotta find that that pedometer. <laughs> No, the 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 pepper thing just it crushed I crushed my soul. I I was like, "Oh, my chest hurts watching this." Yeah. And I I thought that it was good that the documentary too. Like it was sad the life cycle of the pepper and we should definitely waste fewer peppers. But I think a really important point that the movie also made is that wasting dairy and meat is just a lot worse than wasting produce. It's definitely bad to waste produce. It's a lot of energy and resources you're wasting particularly if you're not composting it but dairy and meat just takes so much more to put into it that like it's it's i don't know it feels almost criminal to waste you know like you're growing a whole animal and killing it <laughs> it just sits in your fridge and rots like yeah and it's even worse than what they uh talked about because like they cited methane as like 20 times more potent than co2 as a greenhouse gas but it's actually more like 80 times <laughs> And given how much like methane pollution comes from like cows and animal agriculture, yeah, really bad. And also created when you landfill organic matter. So compost that shit. Yeah. And I, I actually found that was one of the very few complaints I had about this film was that for most of it, they focused on produce and the waste created from the produce industry. And I felt like considering how impactful waste from the meat industry is, that the time spent on each of them should have been maybe reversed. But then on the other hand, there's like so many documentaries about animal agriculture that I can see why they decided to focus on the the regular agriculture because I think people don't realize how many perfectly good sweet potatoes are being thrown away because they just cost too much to rescue from this, like to be to be picked again, you know? Yeah, I also think it was just a product of their challenge, right? Like, it's a lot easier to reclaim produce from like a dumpster because if it's been not kept cold for a couple hours, that's fine. I remember there was one point in the documentary. I don't remember how they got the meat, but they got meat for the first time in like a while in their challenge. And the dude was so excited about it. <laughs> he was like, I haven't had meat in I months. think it was from the pizza photo yeah. shoot. <laughs> and she's like, what are you going to do with all these bacon bits? And he's like, I'm just going to put it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing to their credit, though, with the, the meat side of things, at least at the in the first section of the film, was when they were talking about meat agriculture, they were specifically using concentrated feedlots as their stock footage, which... 
I appreciate it a great deal uh, because it would have been very easy for them to show like, you know, very unrepresentative, idyllic ranching stock photos. So I was really glad they did that. Yeah, the the feedlots really, I don't see that very often because like you said, they like often films will use the idealized version of free roaming cattle, which is not accurate to how the industry works. So to see the feedlots actually really resonated with me as well. Yeah, and it's just easier to get footage of those idyllic farms because people are less worried about hiding it. They don't have like gag rules as much. <laughs> it probably took them some doing to find that footage too. Yeah, which also I, I said at the beginning of the film because at the the last section of the film they go to that like food scrap pig farm, and yeah, that was both fascinating to me because I was like, man, this is like actually like a really good, like really good idea, but also all those poor pigs. Just let them live. Yeah, I was kind of pro that pig guy. Like, if all farming was like that, I'd be much more fine with eating meat, I think. I like the that they, they, like, included a few shots of him playing with piglets. And I'm like, oh, he's still a pig farmer, though. <laughs> yeah, but at least yeah, they get a nice, like, piggy life first, you know? <laughs> They're living off of that fine Las Vegas mulch. Yum, yum, yum. Woo. To be fair... That would actually probably be some real high quality mulch. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I'm like, oh, they're getting some real fancy feed, these pigs. Yeah, they're going to get a little like gold flecks. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was actually the when they were talking to those Las Vegas pig farmers as well. And they were just like talking about Las Vegas as just this sort of like monument to abundance. It was just like such an interesting section of the documentary in terms of like, how we deal with abundance, even just as like this sort of like, there's a, a concept I've been learning about through the dawn of everything by David Graeber and David Wengro uh, in terms of like schismogenesis. And when they bring up the example of the guy's father who'd grown up during the depression and world war II rationing. And I just like wonder how much of our sort of like culture of abundance and throwaway is because of just like kids rebelling against their parents who grew up with this kind of like rationing mentality and, and are now just like very wanton with how they consume food. It even makes me wonder that it's like the guy in your group who's like dumpster diving for his kids. Like, I wonder if his kids are going to grow up and just be like, my dad dumpster dived and that's why I throw away all my food. <laughs> <laughs> no, we talked to them. They, they seemed actually pretty on board with the idea of food reclamation, especially um, the, the, the dude he seemed like he'd continue it i thought <laughs> yeah but really good point robbie i think it's time for all of us to uh fight back against our parents now and go back to using the same tea bag for a week straight <laughs> right <laughs> this is actually also a section that had one of the factual inaccuracies from the documentary um and it was when the the british dude was talking about how like agriculture had been the like original premise of surplus and this is actually just factually untrue. And it's interesting that this was like a Vancouver film production because like the potlatch culture in West Coast was like all about abundance and surplus and generosity around that. And that all existed without agriculture. One of the one of the weird little like factual inaccuracies from the documentary where I was just like, no, actually, you don't need an agricultural society to like have massive surplus and to have more than you need. Uh, it turns out that nature can just be quite bounteous if you have good relations with it. There's another um, another tip that I thought was really useful from the documentary. And that was uh, when they did find stuff that had been thrown out, they also checked the recall list uh, to make sure that their food hadn't been recalled, which 
I would never have thought to do, but was is very useful. <laughs> Make sure your food hasn't been recalled if you're going to if you're going to go dumpster diving and eat from it. Yeah, I literally liked that point too. I found the film mostly extremely thorough, especially considering its length, which is just an example of how the last one we watched, Sea Spiracy, was not thorough at all and longer somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like this was the one factual inaccuracy that I was like, oh, yeah, that's clearly false. And then the methane thing was, I think it was just made 10 years ago and we didn't know better at the time how potent methane was. And it's like, those are the two, those are the only two like things that I was in my notes being like, this is an important correction. <laughs> yeah. And like, even so, um, I mean, the agricultural point, you might be right that there are some societies that can be abundant without agriculture, but like, in the historical record, you know, agriculture was still an important element of some societies developing. So it's not like it's like wholesale wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's it was how we framed it is like very specifically one of the, the things that the Dawn of Everything contests quite strongly with like a lot of examples of ways that like, yes, so some societies created abundance through agriculture, but it wasn't like the only method of doing so. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah. might be a product of the age of the film as well, just in that, I I mean, I don't even know if it's changed yet, but the idea that the people who lived here before settlers came were surviving instead of thriving, which is a correction that I have been hearing a lot recently, especially from indigenous communities, where it's like, no, 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 no. The framing of of how people were living here before before Europeans came is that, oh, they were surviving, but they weren't really thriving. And, you know, the Europeans came in and, and showed them a better way. And now they're doing much better. And it's like, no, 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 they were doing very well without, without European intervention. Thank you. And also Europeans were doing very badly. They had no trees. <laughs> Everything smelled like shit. Everybody was sick all the time. Like... Yeah, but it's just, it's that narrative. It's that narrative of, oh, you know, nobody nobody could have had surplus of anything without agriculture. And I think maybe that's something that's starting to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. If you want lots of good examples of that kind of stuff, book recommendation for the dawn of everything. It's fantastic. Because, yeah, even to the extent that, like, indigenous critiques of European society was, like, one of the foundations of the Enlightenment that people worked very, very hard to erase from history. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Here's another thing I liked from the documentary. Uh, did you guys remember when they were talking about the Quest grocery store? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were super cool. Uh, for those who haven't seen the film and are just listening to us, uh, it was uh, it's a grocery store that sells low-cost donated food to, um, to people who sort of apply and can show that they're on a low income. The idea is that it's not just a store for everybody so that you get grocery stores that are willing to donate to it and that it's sort of serving the people who need it the most. And uh, they cited that the grocery store saves $4 million a year in food, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. I really like that as like a, a way that we can look at like what happens if we decommodified food to a certain extent. Like I thought of Quest and I was like, oh, this is a food library and it's great. It's such an interesting idea as well. Someone that I've been talking to here in Edmonton who's been looking at trying to do food rescue to feed people who are unhoused is looking at it in terms of like writing off. So spoiled food is a write-off and like cold food is a write-off for grocery stores, but it might be better if they can write it off as like a charitable donation. And so trying to figure out ways to like create additional food rescues using that kind of framework. 
Yeah, actually, um, our food rescue episode is about an organization that does exactly that. Um, so stay tuned for part three. <laughs> <laughs> Although in that episode, I did ask her, you know, about grocery stores giving their food away and, and how in her case, she stip- like they stipulate that the food can't be resold. So it was interesting to see. It can be resold. It can't be resold at cost. Oh, okay. So maybe then they are supplying places like Quest. Because I, I really liked the Quest idea, a grocery store where you can still, you still buy the food. It's like a step between a regular grocery store and a food bank, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure whether the Quest case would count. Um, it would be interesting to see, but definitely. <laughs> the interesting thing about the the Quest example is that it was really wholesome and heartwarming, and yet the warehouse supervisor was still like, oh, we have to turn away so much food that gets donated because we just can't fit it on the shelves. And it's like, ah, we should have laws against this. (laughs) Why is so much food being sent to the landfill? Yeah, it's so interesting how, like, over this whole series, we've been looking at different kinds of solutions, and they're all kind of like Cludges, these like small solutions that are trying to fix this overarching problem that we're treating food as a commodity that can be easily wasted. And so, like, every solution has to fit within that framework, even the Quest grocery store. Like, they have to have those income limits because the donation model really wouldn't work if they were able to sell to everybody, right? (laughs) So, that inherently limits how effective they can be and means that they're always going to have to turn away um, food that otherwise could be reclaimed, you know? Like, I think the film, I don't know if they suggested this or if I was just, I had high brain and it gave me the idea, but <laughs> the idea that if you if you waste food, you should be charged for it. So if you go to a restaurant and you order more than you can eat, the restaurant should be fined for all the food they throw away, which might encourage restaurants to have smaller portions or encourage people to order a few dishes that are small instead of one giant dish, you know? Yeah, I think they were talking about that in terms of all-you-can-eat sushi, which is just, it's a great rule. <laughs> 10 out of 10 rule, yeah. Yeah, this wasn't so much like a fine, like a, an inaccuracy, but at the very end of the film, when the, the British guy is talking about like how so many of these problems can be solved by like tweaks to the system, I was just like, but none of what this documentary has shown so far seems to indicate that. Like, there are so many ways that it demonstrates that it's just like, yeah, trying to do little like tweaks here and there isn't going to be enough because of just the monumental scale of food waste. That at a certain point, there does need to be like a transformation in how we view food as a commodity. Even um, when the warehouse manager was talking about how, and they were sort of like going through the warehouse industry where it's like, yeah, if something is like dented or damaged, the only option for that warehouse that's economically feasible is to throw it in the garbage because it would take so many man hours to like, you know, repackage it or something. That's that's such a huge issue that you can't just like tweak away. That requires reimagining what we think of our supply chain as being for. Like, is it for profit or is it to get food to people who need it? Because right now it seems to mostly be just for profit. Yeah, Kristen and I discussed that a little bit in our other food waste episode where I talk about my experiences as a warehouse manager and just the amount of work it takes to even recycle stuff can be absolutely monumental. I did a lot of it on my free time, but it's like, I don't get paid for that and I'm working full time and I'm doing this podcast. So it's like, when am I supposed to be able to do good? I need help. I need rules (laughs) so that we have these things on site, you know? 
Yeah. And I was also thinking um, we had this exact discussion when we were with the dumpster diving group and talking about the kombucha bottles because it was suggested to us that the, the most likely reason it was thrown out is that one of the kombucha bottles in the case had smashed. And uh, rather than sort of like reshuffling, if you've got, you know, a couple of packages this has happened to or like cleaning off the glass and selling them as individuals, it just like it's much easier to throw it out because then you're not wasting the person who's being paid $15 an hour, you know, being paid minimum wage, but still an amount of, of wage to clean it, which to me, like, that's so fucked up. <laughs> you know, these kombucha bottles are selling probably for like three to five dollars each. Like, uh. Yeah. And once you wipe the stickiness off of them from the blasted bottle, they were perfectly fine. Totally fine. Yeah, like even one of the notes that I have um, was when they were talking to the grocery store workers and you could tell the difference between when they were talking to a manager and when they were talking to just like someone stocking the shelves because it was just like, I don't know, man, it's my job. <laughs> <laughs> but even like there's also like a degree of, of like worker empowerment that it's like it really sucks to be stuck in that situation as an employee to be like, look, I can see you need this thing and I know that it's going in the dumpster, but I physically cannot give it to you or I might lose my job. Yeah. This is one of the the ugly things about like having a food system that's designed for the profit of the grocery stores rather than feeding people. Yeah. yeah and again, this is like a public policy choice. And it's a public policy choice that like, I mean, maybe Robbie, you will think we need to do this, but you don't necessarily have to overthrow capitalism to be able to change the incentives so that um, at least some of this stuff is ended. You know, you could take put in place French style laws that prohibit you from just destroying food. You know, that's a thing we could actively do right now. We could also just nationalize Loblaws. We don't have to nationalize all of them. <laughs> just Loblaws. <laughs> so these are you, fine. Galen Weston. <laughs> <laughs> uh so okay in an ideal world what would be your solutions like i know Kristen, you like the idea of the french solution but in a perfect world you have you know your prime minister and no one's going to vote against whatever you suggest about dealing with food waste what would you want to see are we also assuming federalism isn't a problem <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> We've abolished the notwithstanding clause. Yes, exactly. Provinces <laughs> just have to listen to whatever I say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the French law is a really good start. You know, at, at the very least, ban grocery stores from being able to destroy food. One of the things in a, our other episode that the charity talks about is how the lack of composting in some areas of Canada would make this tough because in France, um, de facto, what ends up happening is just stores are forced to compost. Which isn't perfect, but it is at least something, you know, at least that's not methane being produced in landfills. So maybe I would also implement some sort of sliding scale where you'd get maybe some kind of incentive in the system if you're actively donating and uh, really steep fines for destroying food. And I'd also establish a regulatory organization that is like effectively going out and checking, because if there's one thing I've learned over the pandemic it's that government policies are somewhat effective by just being enacted, but if there's not enforcement, like, there are lots of places in Alberta right now that are not checking vaccine status when they should be, and it's because there's not enforcement. So regulators are an important part of that. For me, I'm really curious about, like, creating a public option for grocery stores, because it's, like, one of the things that is notable is that, like, 
all of this is because of profit motive. So if you create a public option, like nonprofit grocery store, what does that look like in terms of food waste? And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if you're a public option and your entire purpose as an organization is feeding people, then yeah, you just put all the culls at the front of the store and you say, if you need it, take it. And I think that would make such a huge difference would even just be having like a nonprofit driven public option for food. Yeah, the tricky thing with with that, though, Robbie, is you'd still need to be okay with it being at a loss, which politically, we'd have to change how we think about government owned businesses, you know, but all of this food waste is already at a loss. Like that's one of the things that I think is notable is that like you can still normal grocery stores still do this. They just write off the call as like unsold produce or product. No, I know, but it would eat into profits if you were allowing people to call, which I think is great and it should be. But the public would have to be okay with the fact that this nonprofit grocery store probably would either net even or it might even lose a little bit of money, which I, again, I think is great. <laughs> politically. Also, if I was the prime minister and had absolute dictatorial power to create public options without any kind of democratic accountability, there you go. There's a great public option. <laughs> Prime Minister King. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I had the same idea as as Robbie. I was like, we need a, like a public option for this stuff. But my idea, my idea was like, take it a step further, and the public grocery store should only be getting its food from calls or from gleaning or you know what I mean. Like like stock the whole grocery store the way that Quest is stocked. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you can create the infrastructure to pick it up. Because like that's also one of the challenges that we've had even like operating as like a relatively small group is that it's like we have lots of people who want to donate things to us. But it's like the infrastructure of actually like getting it and preparing it is so arduous that it doesn't even make sense. So that would be my suggestion is is uh, we should have a nationalized quest store <laughs> where uh, every every city has at least one. It's run by the government. You maybe you still have to pay for stuff. The culls are put at the front, but everything is is either donated or rescued. Yeah, I think if you have a section that's only donated or rescued, because there's there is still going to be a stigma around that people aren't going to shop there. So if you want it to be the grocery store of choice, um, you make it the most competitive grocery store. You don't care about running it out of profit. You make it always the cheapest food. Yeah, you have that that calls at the front um, for free. Well, as Prime Minister King, I just outlaw all other grocery stores and grocery stores can't be for profit anymore. <laughs> there we go. There Never going to get reelected, Kyla. <laughs> <laughs> Dictatorship of the proletariat grocery store. Amazing. Does anyone have any final thoughts on just eat it or food waste in general? I just wanted to say that when he was helping his brother move and they were going through the fridge, that was extremely like, that, that was a really bad vibe because that reminded me a lot of like my roommate and I when we were moving out, just like dealing with this gigantic fridge of like food that we don't know what it is or why we have it. <laughs> I found that so relatable, uh, especially when they were talking to his brother and he was like, yeah, you're just out, you're busy, you don't think about what you have at home and plan meals around that. You're just like, oh, let's have you know, this for dinner tonight, you pick up the ingredients and you fill your fridge and then you never use those ingredients again. And it's, I just, as somebody who, I don't waste very much food, but I still feel that. (laughs) I was like, oh man, I am, I am being called out right now. And I feel like so is literally everyone else. Like that guy had no shame in admitting it and he shouldn't because it is not just him. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's partly that we're all so time poor. 
Mm-hmm. If we maybe shorten the work week to like four, three or four days, then maybe people would have more time to meal plan. One of the takeaways I wanted to have was I thought they had a really useful th- set of things that regular people can do if they want to take the first few steps in reducing food waste. Um, so one of them for them was use freezers more. So anytime something's about to go off, freeze it. Plan meals and shopping lists. So either if you're going to do a weekly grocery shop, really plan out that weekly meal plan. Or you can shop for less food less often or more often. So I kind of am more on that model where I go every couple days, but it's only to pick up one or two items that I know I need because I'm planning around what's already in my fridge, uh, which is their third tip. Um, don't plan your grocery trip based on the meals you want to have. Plan your meals based on what you already have in your fridge and then have that eat me first bin in the fridge. Yeah. And I think part of it is also just like ask. Like go to your grocery store and ask because I know that like there was a lot of public pressure that created this sort of like imperfect vegetable bags that you can get now. And I love those. I get those every time. Uh, one of the other things that you can do, which you, which couldn't have been in the film because it's kind of new. The film is like, you know, five or six years old is an app called flash food, which grocery stores will put on food that's about to be culled. And so you can just like go into the store and pick it up on the cheap works really well. My sister has been using it for the last couple months and like, you know, she's gotten kilograms of bananas for a couple of cents. It's pretty wild what you can get. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really cool app for reducing food waste. You can also get like really creative with food stuff as well. Again, if you're not time poor and have the ability to sort of like go out, get stuff on the cheap uh, and then have the time to turn it into something else. She's been making banana wine, which is excellent and something I never would have thought of making. That's amazing. Banana wine. Right. Oh, it's delicious. And so, yeah, it's also like getting creative with the food you're cooking is also a really great way to help reduce food waste. Okay, cool. So we have lots of suggestions for what we can do at home. Kristen and I would recommend trying dumpster diving if you have a community in your area that you can join. It was much easier to do with friends who knew what they were doing than doing it by ourselves. So we really recommend that. We found our group on Facebook. But if you just look up dumpster diving or freeganism, it's all something that you could really look into. And it's just it's very eye opening. It's something that it's one thing to know about food waste. It's another to just experience it and see it. So we found a lot of value in that. And then there's also all of the other suggestions that we've made. So there are actually like real things that people can take away from this episode. Yay. But also, (laughs) of course, still write to your representatives and be like, food waste is a problem. Please deal with it. It would be a huge step towards dealing with climate change, which all of the politicians love to talk about now. And it's like, here's a solution, you guys, that pretty much everybody could get on board with. So here's a solution that won't cost the government any money. You don't have to run it through finance. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Robbie. It's always a delight to have you jump in on our, I guess you're just our reactions person now, which is very fun for us when we need a break from research. (laughs) (laughs) apparently i'm an excellent critic so thank you thank you for that and i don't know if this actually counts as a break because we ended up doing three episodes on food waste when we intended to do one (laughs) so stay tuned listeners we have we have ideas for days we uh we will literally never run out of topics until climate change is solved and so is inequality worldwide So actually, I would love to stop our podcast. If all of that happens, then I will gladly retire. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Uh, We'll catch you on the next one. 
Have a good one. Bye. Bye.